You're listening to WLPN 105.5 FM Chicago, and you're listening to Labor Express Radio, Chicago's only labor news and current affairs radio program. News for working people by working people. I'm your host, Jerry Mead Lucero, and this is Sunday, October 22nd, 2023 edition of Labor Express. Well, the UAW strike at the big three automakers has entered its second month this past week, and it just may be entering the home stretch, according to the comments of UAW President Sean Fain on this past Friday's weekly Facebook Live address to members and the public. Fain indicated that negotiations are progressing and that the union has already won many of its demands, but that the members need to hold fast to get over the victory line, warning that it's in the final days of strikes that unions often ultimately win their biggest breakthroughs. There were no new plants that went on strike this Friday, but a week ago, Fain changed the game once again by declaring that they will strike facilities as needed without warning. The UAW then pulled its members out at Ford's big Kentucky truck plant, its flagship moneymaker, really upsetting Bill Ford and ratcheting up the pressure. We'll have voices from the picket lines here in Chicago and hear directly from the rank and file as to what they hope to win in a new contract. In the second half of our program, old friend of Labor Express Radio and I guess my own uh, former labor boss, if you will, as I was a member of the National Writers Union for a while, uh, Larry Goldbetter, president of the NWU, the National Writers Union, will be on the program via another old friend of Labor Express, Steve Zeltzer of Workweek Radio and the Labor Video Project. Unfortunately, the circumstances of their being on the program is the continually unfolding tragedy in Israel and the Gaza Strip, which we can't ignore here at Labor Express. So they will offer a perspective on that crisis from organized labor, or I should say actually a perspective of a segment of of the organized labor community. I'll provide more details and explanation of that in the second half. But first, on a much less somber and upsetting note, I was able to get down to the UAW picket lines at the Chicago Ford Assembly Plant and talked with several of the strikers. It's a boisterous picket line, to say the least, definitely a bit of a party atmosphere. As I've said before, and I'll say it again for those non-UAW members out there, if you've not yet been able to go out to one of the many UAW picket lines around the country to show your solidarity, do it soon. I guarantee it'll be a lot of fun and that you'll be a witness to an historic event in the history of the U.S. labor movement. As I said at the top of tonight's program, the strikers have reason to be in a celebratory mood. On his latest Facebook Live event, Fain explained that all three automakers were now offering at least 23% wage increases compared to the less than 10% they initially offered. Still a long ways off from the 40% the union has demanded, but major progress. And I've heard from both uh, mem- uh, rank and file members out in the picket lines and commenters this past week predicting that over 30% uh, wage increases were now pretty much a certain thing. Tears are very much looking like a thing of the past in the auto industry, and those perma temps where workers never seem to get beyond temporary status also seems to be coming to an end. Making sure that the electric vehicle production is folded into union contracts remains a more complicated issue despite the move by GM to do so recently. You will hear uh, all of these issues addressed by the strikers that I interviewed uh, amidst the honking horns of supporters passing by on Torrance Avenue and the chants of no deal, no wheels, and no bucks, no trucks. First up, two workers who have worked for Ford for seven years and only just reached the pay level of legacy workers, but as tiered employees still lack benefits like a pension. Um, My name is Jacqueline Hernandez, and I've been working here at the assembly plant for seven years. Hello, my name is Augustine Serrano, and I've been working for seven years also. Okay, so tell me a little bit about why why you're out here. You're out here in a kind of a relatively cold Tuesday night, getting colder, the weather's starting to to get nippy. Uh, What brings you out here uh, to be out on the street here with your picket signs and so on? Why is it important to you? It's important to me because I have a family and um, we really need to be out here for this contract because it means a lot from what they took, took away from us in 2008. So we're hardly making any money as a temporary employee and we do a lot of hard work here and we're laborers. We deserve this, you know, so. 
Um, I'm here to support my union brothers and sisters, and I believe we all deserve our fair share. Yeah. And pretty much it. You mentioned temporary, so are you working as a temp right now? I, when I was a temporary employee, I was a temporary employee for three years. They had me as a temporary employee, and there was no raises. You didn't get no access to no profit sharing. You don't have no access to a lot of things they don't get. So I, I'm really out here for the, the future of, of the Chicago Assembly, future of UAW employees, because it's hard. It's hard when they had the tears, so I'm hoping that that completely gets eliminated. And, and yeah, yeah, I'm out here for the future of UAW and my family. Yeah, kind of is a different uh, meaning of temporary if you've been doing it for three years, right? It's, <laughs> it's, it's that, not it's very hard. temporary. Not, yeah, temporary is not three years. Right. Temporary is 90 days or, you know, like that's, you know, and then you don't get any days to call off. Imagine being temporary for three years and you can't even call off or you'll lose your job. And my understanding, too, is what they're looking for is, like you said, 90 days is right. the limit for the temporaries. Exactly. Is that That's what, what we're looking for and we put it on the contract or what our proposal was. So we're hoping we get that out there. We'll be out here as long as it takes to, to get what we deserve. And you mentioned the tiers too, and that's been a big issue in this contract, right? You got people working now. You, since you guys have been here seven years, you're not in legacy employees yourselves, right? Are you? Are, were you after we, the tiers? I work? just made top pay. Oh, okay. So yeah, but even at top pay, it's like barely enough. It's barely enough, you know, considering what what it could be, and with without having cola and the cost of living, it's it's just hard. It's hard to live off of that. I I know people that ha that are not laborers and make more money than me you know and it's not fair i work very hard i deserve to have you know what i, I what they owe me so yeah so seven years ago so when did you start exactly then what year i believe 2017 okay okay yeah. so that was after the, the, the you know the, the the tiers were implemented and the cuts and so on so did it take you longer to get to that uh you know yeah. uh full pay then basically yeah it did. yes it did it took us seven years to get to a top pay we just made top pay I see. Okay, okay. yeah so yeah, so eliminating the tiers would eliminate you know the situation where you have coworkers working next to you making half what half you are. Money. And it, it it was it, it it's a hard situation when you're working even harder sometimes because when you're a temporary employee they put you on the hardest jobs, and when you're working that hard and you can't even get a profit sharing check, and the next person does, it it, it really really sets like a boundary towards it like um, your coworkers like. There's tension. It really divides people. It divides, it divides people. And it does set people, you know, against each other. Right. It pits the older employees versus the new employees. employees. It does set a bad presence uh, amongst the, the people in the company. Yeah, lots of tension, you know. So, so yeah, and we don't want to be against each other. We want to be all the same. We want to be together. Now, now we're more united more than ever now on this picket line more than we were in that plant. So I'm glad that this happened because you know what, it brought us together even stronger and once we get back in there and once we get the contract we deserve, we'll be even stronger in there and we'll be more united. Yeah, unions are all about solidarity, right? They're all about yes. the members standing up for each other and that's very hard to do if you got one group of employees making one wage and another group of exactly. employees making a different wage. Exactly. So it's hard. It's hard when it divides us, like you said, it really does. Now, again, because when you guys came in, are you guys also, you don't have uh, pensions like the, uh, no, the legacies, I right? No, I do not have a pension. I don't. 401k is all we got, and we put into that. So it's whatever we put into it, and whatever they want to match us, they'll match us. But it's usually whatever we, we put into that is what we're going to retire with. 
So I know they're also pushing to reestablish pensions, you know, uh, like legacy employees have. Is that something that's important to you as well? Oh, uh, yes, because it's the future. I don't know what I'll be doing in 10, 15 years, but hopefully I'll be ready for next 20 years. And you know what, to me, that's very important, a pension, because I don't know how my body is going to be once I'm out of here. I could be broken down completely. I could not even be able to work or who knows. You know, by the time I leave here, by the time my body's done with this place, there's no telling how I'm going to be. I need my pension. Well, we did talk about COLA, right? Yeah, right. We did talk about that. If you want to um, see more about that, go ahead. Uh, yeah, with inflation being so high, everything went up. We deserve more money. We deserve to... We deserve to match up to the economy right now because it's hard. It's hard. We, we're barely able to, to, you know, support our family, you know. Yeah, I think this last couple of years with the, with the rate of inflation has really pointed out the importance of the COLA, right? Um, yeah. I mean, we, you know, if, if you don't have that in place, even a wage gain can be right. eaten away very quickly. It doesn't make much of a difference, you know. It doesn't make much of a difference. So we definitely need COLA. We need that back. We do. So... We're out here. It's almost. It's going to be about a month now, right? Almost. Um, like I said, it's getting a little chillier and everything like that. But there's a lot of people out here. Uh, you were on a Tuesday night, you know, in the middle of the week, uh, a month into this. It seems like spirits are pretty high. Is that your impression of the situation? Everybody's so devoted and want that contract and deserve that contract that they're going to be out here as long as it takes. We're out here. And this is like this for the last, what, three weeks? Yeah. And it, the, the energy has been great. So... Going on three weeks for three us. Weeks. Three weeks. Uh, hopefully, uh, it ends soon. Right. I should point out, yeah, that uh, you know, I was saying a month, but of course, you guys didn't come out in the first round of of uh, strikers, but you guys were shortly after, a couple weeks after the the first strikes uh, strikers came out. Right. Um, have you heard any good news in this last couple of week in terms of where things are at with negotiations? I hear supposedly they've reached eighty five percent of the the things met that we're demanding, but that's just stuff I read on the internet. I'm not for sure if it's true or not. I hope it is, you know. Supposedly, the, we're on the fence about EVs right now is why we're not continuing on. That's what I hear, and um, I, I, I disagree with the whole EV future. Yeah, me too. So, I mean, uh, eh. That's a really good uh, uh, point to raise, right? Because they, they did have a breakthrough with GM, right? Where GM agreed to start uh, uh, having the battery, electric battery production in uh, the union contract. That was a huge step forward. But I guess Ford is still kind of uh, resisting that so yeah, far. Yeah, they are. No, they no, are. That's they, from what I No see. mention of uh, the EVs at all yet. Right. So. And that's so much about the future of the auto industry, yeah, right? So that's, that's a major, major issue. Yes, definitely. Yeah, they're not even offering. It's not even on the table for the UAW right now for Ford. Right, right. So uh, hopefully we get something here at Chicago Assembly Plant because the future is very important. If we don't have an EV, we don't have no future. I think the other thing that I keep hearing too is that you know one of the biggest sticking points remaining is is the wage increases. And I know, you know, uh, the unions asked for 40 percent. The the companies were originally asking or uh, offering less than 10, but it seems that they've come up closer now. They're like, at last I heard, they were in like the low 20s or whatever. Yeah, it so it seems like there's movement in the right direction, but still a long ways away from what the union would wants to see, right? I, I believe we deserve the 40 percent. A lot of people say it's too much. You know, I, I see a lot of that, but. We do deserve the 40% because it'll just bring us back to where we were supposed to be. You know what I mean? So, yeah, I, I, I am stuck with the 40%. I, I wouldn't take anything less than that. 
Okay, well, I really appreciate you guys talking with no me. Thank problem. you so much. It was nice meeting you. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. It was a pleasure talking to you. <laughs> You're listening to Labor Express Radio, news for working people by working people. You heard from two workers there in the lower tier. Micheline Joseph is a legacy employee who expressed not only the danger of tears to union solidarity, but also talked about, uh, in quite eloquent terms, what working on a production line does to a worker's body over the years. Make sure you listen to her entire interview here, as I think she expresses the reality of life for a production worker in stunning terms. You can also hear Micheline's comments, the frustration that many of the picketers on the strike line had this past week. as they were hearing these comments of their boss, Bill Ford, executive chairman of Ford Motor Company and the great-grandson of the company founder, Henry Ford. Ford seemed to personalize the strike this past week and blame the strike for pretty much everything short of cold weather in the winter. I think uh, Ford was not only frustrated by the UAW hitting him where it hurts at the Kentucky truck plant, but it has also seen the rise of the personality of Sean Fain as a voice of the strike and his attempt to counter, but to little effect. Fain responded by pointing out that despite Ford's pleading of poverty in recent comments, Ford Motor Company recently announced a $600 million fourth quarter dividends and a raise in the stock price. Here's Micheline. My name is Micheline Joseph. I've been at Ford 29 and a half years. Okay, so you're a legacy employee then, I assume. Yes. So one of the big issues I know is the tiers, and, and that's really been hard for the union. It really breaks down solidarity when you've got, you know, people like yourself who've, you know, got the full pension right. package and full wages, right. but you got other people that are making half you right. what you're making and don't have those benefits. Is that important to you in this case? Oh yes, it is. I won't even let my own kids come here and work because of that. You know, it's unfair because it's the same work. So same work equal pay. Right. I've been on that line. I know how it is. So yes, everyone should get paid the same. It shouldn't. It should have never been a two-tier. I understand it because they asked us to do it for concessions, because that was the year when Ford, when the government was bailing out all the big auto workers. So to keep Ford from having to take money from the government, we gave in the concessions, and they owe all us that back. So yeah, we should get rid of two tiers by all means. Besides the tiers, what are the big issues for you in this strike? Um, retiree benefits. Um, unfortunately, that's another thing we gave up. Um, the retirees, when you retire, you're entitled to $3,100 a month. But unfortunately, at the age of 62, when you sign up for your Social Security, however much money Social Security gives you, Ford deducts that from your retiree benefit, which only leaves you with $3,100 a month no matter what. When it should be the $3,100 plus the $2,000 that you get from your Social Security, because at the end of the day, we paid into our pension. We did our time. We did our 30 years. That's our money. So why when Social Security kick in, which is also our money, because we paid into that. So when Social Security give us our money, why should Ford be able allowed to deduct from our pension? We didn't deduct from our 30 years of service, and some of us have 30 or more years of service here at Ford. So that's unfair practice for us. And also the medical benefits for the retirees. That should be better. But because they're older, they're, they still should have their medical benefits because medications, you know, get pricier at an older age and things like that. And you got to think about it, a lot of these people have ailments from working here at Ford. You know, the neck pain, the back pain. I myself have had two hand surgeries from working here at Ford Motor Company. I probably would have never had to have copper tunnel surgery had I worked somewhere else, but unfortunately I got copper tunnel syndrome in both hands and they had to perform surgery on both and I got 25% use in each hand. You know, so when I retire, where am I going to work at? <laughs> you, you know what I'm saying? I, I didn't hurt myself. I got hurt doing the job here. So, yeah, that's, a, that's another big issue. 
I just heard two from uh, two of the workers I talked to. You know, one thing they're concerned about is, of course, the the future of the auto industry with electrification and so on. Um, I know one breakthrough that's happened, at least with GM, is the talk about uh, uh, doing their uh, battery production for their electrical vehicles as part of the union contract. Is that something that you'd like to see too for the other auto companies like Ford? Yeah, I, I believe none of the work concerning the vehicle should be outsourced. It all should be in-house. Like we already um, outsourced the company that makes the seats. We used to make our own seats in-house, but now we have a company that's separate from Ford that makes the seats for us. But if you keep everything in-house, it keeps the workers working. You know, being an auto worker, working in the auto industry uh, years ago was one of those jobs where you you knew that if you worked in an auto plant, you could make a decent living, you could raise your family, you could send your kids to college, you could do all those things. It was kind of like, you know, the quote-unquote American dream, right? right? What, and it was only because the UAW built that in the right. long fights in the 30s and the sit-down strikes and so yeah. on. But then, of course, things moved so far back after 2008 with the concessions and so on. So. I, I, the way I see it, at least, is this fight feels like you're trying to reestablish that workers in this country should be able to earn a decent living, should be able to have families and support their families and so on. Well, personally, I believe the, the wages in America should be where a person can live. It shouldn't, the minimum wage should be $25 an hour, minimum, because at the end of the day, inflation is steady going up. Once COVID hit in 2020, everything tripled, doubled in price. The price of wood went up. Eggs went from $1.99 a dozen to $5. Milk went up from $1.99 to $5. Gas went up from $1.99 to it spiked as high as $5.75. Now it's about four and a quarter, four sixty, depending on where you're living. Well, if you don't have the wages to compensate the inflation, to balance it out, now we're moving from being the middle class to the lower class. It's not enough money. And then for those of us, who are like myself, single, you know, parent households, and you're putting your children through college, and you don't get the benefits that a person who may be below minimum wage are getting. I don't qualify for none of that stuff. I don't get child income credit. I don't. I don't get anything. So I have to pay for everything out of pocket. But if I'm coming to work and I'm working 40, 50, 60 hours a week and still can't meet the minimum required in my own household, then that means the wages need to go up. You know what I'm saying? And then not only that, wages should be at a, your, your, at the company I work at, I should be able to afford the vehicle. Right. I can't even afford the vehicle that I build. I can look at it, but I can't drive it. I mean, I, test, I do test drive the vehicle, but I can't afford to buy the car because I have other obligations. You, you understand what I'm saying? And that's a shame because I should be able to come to work. I should be able to, now back in the day when inflation was a little low and things were manageable, yes, I could afford an explorer and yes, I could send my kids to college because the wage versus what the world is asking, my wage was a little higher. But now the world is asking for this X, Y, Z, but my wage is too low for me to keep up with what, you know, the world, like a mortgage is not what it was now, what it was 10, 15 years ago. Rent 10, 15 years ago is not what it is now. A three-bedroom back in the day, you can pay eight, dollars $900 a month. A three-bedroom now will cost you 25 20 In the area I live at, $3,200 a month because I live in the Bronzeville area. You may find some that about 18, 19, but who, who wants to live in it? You understand what I'm saying? You want to be able to live in a comfortable space. 
You know, so we need the wages because the American dream is you should own a car, own your own home, you know, pay your taxes, and if you want to go on vacation, go on vacation. You can't afford to do none of that. You know, and and at the end of the day, our wages only make up five percent of Ford's total income. Five percent. So if they made fourteen point five billion dollars, only five percent of that goes to pay the employees. Come on, y'all can y'all can take it up to ten percent. Y'all can double our, our our pay if you want to, and still come away with ninety percent of profits. You know. I mean, don't get me wrong, I love my job, I appreciate the job because it has allowed me to take care of my family, but at the end of the day, we're struggling to maintain because everything that's our, our government, we have to pay um, state taxes, federal taxes, and then in our own individual um, cities, um, states where we live at, not states, I mean, our own individual um, suburbs that we live in, we have to pay there um, for the city stickers, you know what I'm saying, things like that. So, and then you have to pay your taxes on your property. And when you have things like that, then groceries have, you know, went up and the price of repairing things have gone up. A 40 hour check is not gonna cut it. It's, it's not. So you, ha you have to work, you almost have to work the overtime in order to be able to compete, to have a competitive wage to maintain your household. No one wants to work 120 hours a week just to pay the bills. I'd rather work 40 hours a week and pay my bills and be comfortable. You know what I'm saying? I shouldn't have to go get a second job to pay the bills. Yeah, I've heard that same thing that you said too about the fact that you know most of the uh, workers in the oil plants right now can't afford the cars that they're building, right? And I, I've heard that same thing from a legacy employee too, which yeah. he said you know, 25 years ago, yeah. you know, if he saved his money, he could buy the most expensive car yeah. in the lot. Now he can't buy any car in that he lot. Because yeah. the average, the average explorer, Base price is $39,000. Now, you break that down, even with our discounts, you're probably looking at about $32,000. Well, that's still a six, $700 car note. Now, if you're only paying me on average $960 a week, and my car note is $700, and I still have to pay my mortgage, I still have to buy groceries. I still have to pay my light and my gas bill. And if you are a homeowner, you also have to pay a water bill. You know what I'm saying? Then you also have to put gas in your car. And God forbid you have children that are in college, you still have to pay the. That's not a. Come on. You, you can't. And that speaks to the importance of the cola too, right? I mean, getting yes. the cola back because yes. the the we've seen what inflation has done this last few years. Yeah. Uh, that cost of living increase is essential to make sure any wage gain actually is sustainable, right? Yes, yes. Because now the housing market is a house that will cost you two hundred fifty thousand uh, dollars five six years ago, seven hundred eighty thousand. You know, housing market is going up. The auto industry is going up. We're not our parents, so our parents can can afford to buy, you know, the Mustang back in the 50s and 60s for three thousand dollars. A Mustang right now costs you almost, if you want a nice one, the average fifty-five, sixty thousand. You know, so we need a com that, and that's just not just for UAW. That's for corporate America across the board. We have to have a fair, compatible wage across the board for everyone, so that everyone can live a lifestyle that they deserve. You work for it, you should. And that's why I think this strike is so important, right? Because I think you are out here fighting not only for yourselves, but for the working class in general in this yes. country, which really needs to turn things around, right? Yeah. The working class in general, because we, we're your backbone. Yes, this is your company. 
yes, your father started it back then, but you got to understand it's built on the backs of the average person in the U.S. We have families that we have to take care of. I, unfortunately, my parents don't have a Fortune 500 company that I can just walk into the office and say, hey, I'm here to work and my starting salary is $7.5 million. Starting? Are you serious? That's, that's, not, that's not your average American. And I'm not mad at you for that. But if you're going to build a company that's a family-owned company, at least give your workers a fighting chance to be able to take care of their families. Because in all honesty, if Bill Fordham was to come and get on this line and work the amount of hours we work doing these strenuous jobs that we do, they will have a different respect for us. Because, see, they think we just come in here and we play. We do not. I have had neighbors who have come to me and say, hey, when you get home from work, what do you do? I say, if I sit too long, I'm not moving. Because people don't understand your body is constantly moving. We have a car that roll off the line every 56 seconds, fully built. So if you imagine we're building 680 cars a day, you're moving, everything on your body is moving from 6 a.m. to 5, 12 p.m. with only a 30-minute break in the morning, a 30-minute break at noon, in a 24 minute break in the evening. You understand? That's heavy duty work. And you will hurt in places you never thought you could hurt. And you would not think that that body part will hurt from what you're doing, but because it's repetitive motion, it hurts. And no one in the natural working world works a move like that. And that's what Bill Ford and them need to understand. The average human body does not move in the manner in which we move here on these lines. And then when we sit down for 30 minutes or more, it's like rigor mortis done set in. And you got to get up and crack all your bones back in spot and place for real in order to get back in to do the job you just sat down for 30 minutes. We, we hear so much talk about automation and all that happening, and, and that's certainly a big concern. But so for decades already, workers have been treated like they are robots themselves, right? Like their they bodies do. are robots. They do treat us as robots. They act as if we're not supposed to hurt. I've had two copper tunnel surgeries on my hands. You, I'm constantly doing the same thing over and over. I did one of the most critical jobs at Ford, and that was a cruise control system, speed control. I did it for seven years. My hands got so bad that they locked to my chest and they couldn't move them. They had to call an ambulance to cart me out of here because it stopped my breathing and everything. And I had to have, when I went to the University of Chicago and they did the, the test on my hands for the copper tunnel surgery, as soon as he put it, he was like, oh no, you need surgery right away. Because my valves had, um, my, my tunnel had collapsed in my hand. No blood was circulating. And it's people in here who get injuries from doing these jobs because it's repetitive and people don't understand it. They think they're in here. For, you're standing on concrete 10, 12 hours a day. How do you think your knees are going to respond? Your feet are going to, people get plantar fasciitis. The knees go bad. You get bone on bone because you're standing and you're constantly moving within this two, one and a half, two feet of space is what you got to complete your job. And then the jobs are overloaded, and then if you complain about it, oh, you're complaining. But then we've had management come in and do a shadow program. When they try to do it, they agree with us. We're like, so you can't do it, but you want to fuss at me for doing it. You know, the automotive industry, the workers, it's a different breed. That's why the turnover rate is so high. We, it's, a, it's not many people who has lasted as long as I have. It's people who have come in, by lunchtime they out the door. They're not coming back. Because it's not for everybody. It's not.
Well, hey, I really appreciate you talking about me. I mean, you've really made this real for people that may not be aware of what you guys go through. So I really appreciate oh, we it. We go through it. We it's, it's not an easy job. People think, oh, you work in there. You got the lift machine. You have this. You don't understand. My body is constantly moving every second it is on the clock. The human body is not meant to move every second on the clock. You go into the military, they're not even moving like that. You go to a hospital, the doctors, the only time a doctor is constantly moving is if he's doing surgery. And that is even for a limited amount of time. So you imagine your human body going through 12, 10 hours a day, 6 a.m. to 5, 12, constantly moving. When you sit down, your body locks. And that's the God honest truth. It locks. That's why a lot of people, when they retire, unfortunately, they pass away because they're not moving the way they normally are used to moving. It's almost like you're a robot. I really appreciate you talking with me. Thank you so much. Oh, I appreciate the interview. You're listening to Labor Express Radio, which calls only labor news and current affairs radio program. We need to take a brief station ID break, but when we return, the tragedy in Israel and the occupied territories and how some in the labor movement are responding. So make sure you stay tuned. You're listening to Labor Express Radio News for Working People by Working People. All of you out there, I am sure, are very much aware of the tragedy that has unfolded and continues to unfold in Israel and the occupied territories these past couple weeks, starting with Hamas's indefensible and unconscionable terrorist attack on civilians in southern Israel. Let's be clear, though, that the actions of Hamas may take place within the context of 75 years of occupation and oppression of Palestinians by the state of Israel, starting with the Nakba in 1948. The attack by Hamas, which killed some 1,400 Israelis, mostly civilians, and took over 200 more captive, is not a legitimate act of resistance, and, and its only outcomes will be more death and destruction for Palestinians and the empowerment of the authoritarian wannabe Prime Minister of Israel, Benjamin Netanyahu, and likewise, ironically, the likely empowerment of the theocratic regime in Iran, two cases where popular will and democratic upsurges were on the precipice of bringing both of those governments down. All Hamas has done is embolden these demagogues and the warmongers in Israel, the U.S., Iran, and other dictatorial regimes in the region and beyond. By the time this crisis has passed, whenever that may be, and we don't see an end in sight at this point, Hamas will have far more blood on its hands than the 1,400 Israelis killed in their attack two weeks ago. Now the Palestinians face the full-scale invasion of Gaza with the full might of the IDF, the Israeli Defense Forces, which has already killed four times as many Palestinians in the past couple weeks as Hamas did in their attack and will claim thousands more lives in the days ahead. And not just in the Gaza Strip. Few mainstream news outlets have reported on the attacks on Palestinians in the West Bank since the Hamas attack by Jewish settlers and the IDF. And the war has already come home to roost with the murder of a Palestinian six-year-old boy in Plainfield, Illinois, and numerous other anti-Semitic, anti-Jewish, and anti-Arab attacks or threats of attacks in recent days around the country. To be honest, those like myself who believe in peace, who believe that working people should stand together across borders, who believe in the right to self-determination and self-defense, who oppose anti-Semitism, racism, and xenophobia in all of its forms in the strongest terms, we feel rather hopeless at this moment. The long hope for two-state solution for peace in Palestine seems all but dead and buried like so many Israelis and Palestinians, but neither does the idealistic utopian dream of a one-state binational solution seem like anything close to possible reality. The impact of this conflict on so many of our working-class brothers and sisters at home and abroad means we can't ignore the situation in our coverage here on Labor Express as much as I often wish I could. So to that end, I've decided to air on tonight's program a recent episode of Steve Zelter's Workweek Radio or YouTube program. It's kind of both. And uh, he tries to offer a labor movement perspective on the crisis. 
I do so with some trepidations. I don't find myself in full agreement with either Steve or his guest, Larry Goldbetter, on these issues discussed in this segment. For example, I do not share Zeltzer's disregard of the right of the Ukrainian working class to defend itself from Russian imperialism by accessing arms from the U.S. and other nations. I also think Goldbetter's claim that the Democratic Socialist electeds have been silent on this issue is wrong. After this segment concludes, I'll read from a resolution put forward by a grouping of socialist and progressive anti-war congresspersons. I also don't fully align with either of their positions in regards to the history of the Zionist movement or the state of Israel. But despite what disagreements I may have with both men who I consider friends and comrades, these disagreements are important should not be dismissed, but I think the bulk of what Steve and Larry talk about here is very much on point. For one, they point out the pro-Israel bias of the bulk of the Israeli movement for 75 years. Larry is part of an effort to provide an alternative voice for organized labor, which convened just this last couple days. I'll also read from a statement put out by that new formation, of which Labor Express is a signatory. I also unfortunately share Larry's pessimism in regards to the situation, at least in the foreseeable future. It is important for dissenters to the pro-war leadership of the U.S. labor movement to speak out, but our ability to affect any real meaningful impact in the course of events is minimal for now. So all caveats aside, all disclaimers made, let's hear from Steve Zeltzer of the Labor Video Project and Larry Goldbetter, president of the National Writers Union, offer their perspective on the crisis in Israel and Gaza and the role of the labor movement. This is Steve Zeltzer with Workweek. And the struggle in the Middle East, the struggle in Israel-Palestine, is now at the front burner in the United States. And the United States has two aircraft carriers and an armada uh, to the Middle East to supposedly protect Israel, while at the same time today, uh, Gaza, uh, a population of over 2 million, are basically without services uh, and uh, facing destruction. And joining us today is Larry Goldbetter, uh, and he's president of the National Writers Union. Maybe you can start by saying who the National Writers Union is, Larry, and uh, why your union and yourself are taking up this issue of what's going on in in Israel and Palestine. The National Writers Union is a union of about 1,300 freelance uh, journalists and media workers, book authors, poets, of writers of all kind. And uh, we've been in business for quite a while, and we're an affiliate of the International Federation of Journalists. Internationalism has always been a big component of our outlook, and uh, we are fraternal uh, Part, uh, unions with the Palestinian Journalist Syndicate. Um, and we have, uh, you know, proudly uh, taken a lead in uh, standing up to Israeli aggression, including the murder of uh, uh, Shireen Abu Akla. And uh, unfortunately, uh, not a lot of unions have been present in the past at those types of events. Uh, in the US. Uh, I think that has a possibility of changing now with this, you know, horrific uh, attack by Hamas and then the even more horrific uh, collective punishment being carried out by the Israelis with the support of uh, the US government. And the AFL CIO, along with the US government, were for the formation of the State of Israel. Um, they supported that. And they call themselves Zionists, the leadership of the AFL-CIO. What does that mean that the AFL-CIO and other union leadership call themselves Zionists? Well, I mean, I think the leadership of the AFL-CIO for quite some time has been an agent of the U.S. State Department and uh, has always supported U.S. foreign policy, uh, even as, you know, 
through the Vietnam War and, and through all of the wars in the Middle East. Um, it's funny you should mention that. I was at a uh, meeting last week of the New York City Jewish Labor Committee, and it was... What, what uh, is the New York Jewish Labor Committee? I'm not exactly sure, uh, but I got an invitation, so I went, and uh, it was chaired by uh, Stuart Applebaum, the president of RWDSU, and uh, Randy Weingarten of the AFT. And basically, they were trying to get uh, Jewish progressive labor leaders on board for this onslaught in Gaza and uh, praising Biden, praising, you know, we have to unite. There's nothing more we can do. This is so outrageous. We have to have full support. And the one thing it kind of made clear to me is that, uh, in case people had questions, is that war is union business. That uh, the no no imperialist power can carry out a war for any sustained period of time without either the active or passive support of their workers. And that's what the, the Jewish Labor Committee was trying to organize, which uh, really uh, lit a fire under me to do the opposite, to uh, try and organize uh, opposition to this war and uh, in, in among labor leaders. And uh, tonight we'll be hosting a uh, meeting online for uh, labor notes that will include representatives from other unions on uh, developing uh, an approach to uh, calling for an end to this. And the AFL-CIO, uh, of course, is supporting Israel, but also it is has set up this thing, the Solidarity Center, which takes uh, $75 million a year from the National Endowment for Democracy, a U.S. government agency for international operations in 62 countries. Uh, uh, what is this Solidarity Center? You would think that, for example, uh, Shireen Abu Khaleh would be getting support. She was an American uh, Palestinian uh, journalist uh, who was killed, assassinated. Uh, where did uh, the AFL-CIO stand in that? Uh, even the CWA, which is- as far, as far as I know, they were silent. Uh, and the, the US government has been silent. The AFL-CIO has been silent. Uh, the UN has been silent. Uh, no, and of course, the Israelis have been silent. Nobody has investigated her murder. And this is not new. Uh, journalists, why don't you talk about the attack on journalists in, in Palestine, in Israel, and, and how they've been targeted? This is a war crime targeting journalists, but apparently when it comes to Israel, they, they have a an exception to uh, prosecution. Yeah, Israel has a, a long history of targeting uh, Palestinian uh, media workers and media outlets. Uh, and in this current upsurge, I think uh, uh, 10 journalists have been killed so far. Uh, two are missing that we know of. And uh, more than 50 media offices have been destroyed. And those are all very targeted events. And there was, of course, the journalists that were killed and uh, wounded in Lebanon in a car that was uh, clearly targeted uh, by the Israelis and clearly identified as a press vehicle, everybody in it wearing press vests. Um, so this is an ongoing uh, tactic of theirs. Well, also the United States bombed in Iraq, a building of journalists. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. 
So uh, I would say Israel is not the exception, but uh, the United States itself For is sure. often a sure. journalist. And you say that this is time may be different. I know that uh, at the San Francisco Labor Council, uh, Liz Schuller and her supporters sent a, a letter to the Labor Council saying you can't even discuss the boycott of Israel that's off the table. And that was used by the officials, the leadership of the Labor Council to shut down even a discussion and debate in the labor movement. Uh, it sounds like even having a discussion and debate in the labor movement is a real battle because of the kind of bureaucratic uh, top-down structure of, of these unions. Yeah, you know, uh, we were formerly uh, uh, an affiliate of the UAW. We were a UAW local. And a number of few years ago, during one of these uprisings, uh, uh, two locals, especially the University of California local, passed BDS resolutions and the international union actually met the international executive board met and reversed the votes of the locals who had voted to support BDS. And, uh, this time, you know, you can just get away with that for so long this time, you know, I think, uh, there's going to be more vocal opposition and, uh, you know, I think that's a good thing. Well, one of the things the UAW leadership said at that time is, they had members producing weapons and equipment for Israel, and that would affect their members. But at the same time, uh, with South Africa, uh, the uh, you know there were Arab American auto workers who marched in uh, in Detroit, uh, saying that they should sell the bonds, and they benefit. I mean, the uh, U.S. military budget, close to a trillion dollars a year, the eight hundred bases around the world. Uh, it seems that's part of the United States and a major part of the United States, the military industrial complex. Absolutely. Absolutely. And the, the whole issue of jobs, I mean, it's such a such a hollow argument, such a a nationalist hollow argument. Uh, you know, if. Uh, yeah, Caterpillar was built is built, you know, had contracts with Israel to knock down Palestinian homes. And so the UAW didn't want people criticizing Caterpillar. I mean, it's just part of their pro, pro boss, at least the old leadership's pro boss, pro America outlook. Well, the Biden administration and the leadership of the AFL-CIO say they're for a two state solution, that they want a bar, a partner that they can get in and uh, that would support a two state solution. You don't think that that's uh, feasible? I don't think it's true. Uh, they've had every they've had uh, every opportunity for decades now to try and make that happen, and they've done everything to undermine it. And uh, you know, I mean, personally, I have my my feelings. You know, I think you know South Africa could have been a great model, but where they dismantled apartheid, not with two states, but with one, and. Uh, I think, you know, the unity of uh, Jewish and Palestinian workers is kind of like the bedrock of anything moving forward. Without that, I don't see it happening. And right now, that seems a long way off. Well, you began by saying that the workers are have the power to end war. How would workers end this war? I mean, it's not just the war in, in Israel. There's a, a war in Ukraine. Billions of dollars are going to that. There's the billions are going to Asia. We're trying to militarize. We are militarizing Japan, South Korea, 
it seems like we're going towards world war. Yeah, I think we're going towards world war. And, you know, this is my personal opinions, not my union's opinions. But uh, I think uh, in the past, we've seen world wars turn into their opposite, turn into revolutionary upsurges. And it happened after World War One. It happened after World War Two. And I think in the long term, that's our hope uh, for this coming war. I don't think there's any avoiding it uh, because they're on the fast track. And uh, and this is a very dark night, a very complicated time for workers around the world. And we're going to suffer more before this is done. But the only any any solution has to start with international solidarity that uh, we're not going to kill each other for the profits of our bosses, no matter who they are, whether it's uh, in the US in Russia in China or, or Ukraine or wherever that workers have to unite and uh, ultimately turn their guns around. I mean, you could see in Israel right now, if there were a revolutionary movement of any kind, uh, the, the population has totally lost confidence in the government. The government has created a huge blunder and, uh, and you know, people have no confidence in that government anymore. But they don't have an alternative there. And uh, that's that's what's lacking right now is the alternative. So there's a growing strike wave in the United States of UAW, SAG-AFTRA. Uh, there's a whole question of AI threatening millions of workers in their jobs. Uh, it seems that this uh, strike wave is growing and it is in more and more workers are involved in it. What is the, the strike wave that workers are going in? Uh, what is, how is that connected to, to this crisis of war and, and the Middle East? Well, workers have to pay for these wars. And uh, I think, you know, as you stated earlier, more and more is going into the military budget and uh, workers' wages are falling further and further behind. And there's a certain, uh, the mood of the workers is changing. And uh, there's a lot more anger and determination uh and a little bit better leadership i wouldn't say qualitatively better leadership yet but new leadership in some cases and uh you know these strikes are still pretty much under control i would say the i would i i describe it as the union leaders having a tiger by the tail and they're trying to you know on the one hand let the tiger fight and on the other hand try and keep not let it get out of control um, but I think it's a, it's certainly a promising sign. It's not automatically linked to having a big anti-war sentiment, uh, cause it's all very kind of localized, you know, we've got to get our raise. We have to get our concessions back. We have to, but, you know, it does create the possibility to make the link between imperialist war and workers paying the price for it. Who's paying for these wars? And uh, you have a situation politically where there is no mass working class party. You have the Democrats and Republicans. In fact, they're, they want to get the Congress going again so they can provide more money for the war. That seems to be the high priority. I mean, we have people homeless. We have people without health care, but they want to get the Congress going so they can give more billions of dollars. Exactly. Uh, war. Uh, exactly. The idea of a of a labor party, a working class party, it seems 
working people don't have a political alternative. And that really presents a real problem, especially with the, the rise of fascism in this country. Exactly right. And uh, that's why the future, the short term future is very uh, dangerous and not very bright uh, because that alternative doesn't exist. But quite frankly, I mean, you have, I think you have to throw in there where, where is the squad? Where's Bernie on this? Uh, people have kind of been very kind of quiet about the war in the Middle East. And uh, nobody's really ready to step out there and face the fire, the friendly fire of their uh, of the Democrats uh, in taking on this question. So I, I think our strength really is uh, on the job and uh, in our unions more so than in the electoral process. Right now, you could see already everybody lining up uh, behind Biden because you can't let Trump win again. And uh, any kind of a third party, any kind of an alternative is squashed, not by the fascists, but by the liberals. And uh, Bernie's campaigns were continuously undermined by Hillary and the Democratic National Committee. Uh, so I don't think that's our strong suit. I think our strong suit is where we are every day with our coworkers and uh, in organizations that we can fight for the political leadership within those organizations. And you say you're having a meeting tonight of trade unions from around the country. UE is involved and, and other unions, a member of the executive board of the UAW is involved. What do you hope to come out of it? And how can workers who are opposed to wars, not just in, in Israel, and uh, but also in Russia and, and Asia come together politically? And how can they organize since uh, it seems like there's a hardcore in the trade union bureaucracy who say we're not going to talk about it? I mean, in fact, all the money that's going to work could be going to social services, could be going to healthcare, could be going to education, but that doesn't even see be a debate in the labor movement. Right, right. And it never seriously has been. <laughs> so, I mean, I think, you know, I think this is a very, uh, to say that it's a overwhelming task would be an understatement, but you have to start where you are and do what you can where you are. Uh, you know, I was I was interviewed uh, on El, Al Jazeera last week, and uh, the moderator asked me like the same question four different ways. Uh, how can we stop Israel from killing journalists? Well, the fact is you can't. Not now. Not today. But you have to build something that can, and uh, that's you know as long as they can act with impunity. And as long as our bosses can act with impunity and get away with it, you can't stop them. There's no there's no magic pill. You have to organize and you have to organize around international solidarity is the first thing. We're not going to kill our brothers and sisters for someone else's profits. And, you know, I mean, that that really has to be the, the starting point, anti uh, racism and international solidarity. I, I don't see any shortcuts. Okay, well, I want to thank you very much for joining us. We've been talking with Larry Goldbetter, president of uh, the National Writers Union and also convener of a meeting of labor people talking about what working people in the union should do uh, about this growing danger of uh, the destruction of Gaza and a genocidal attack on, on the people of Palestine in Israel. So thanks for joining us. Thanks, Steve. You're listening to Labor Express Radio, Chicago's only labor news and current affairs radio program. 
as I mentioned before that segment, I'm not in full agreement with everything Steve Zeltzer and Larry Goldbutter had to say in that segment in regards to Ukraine, Israel, Zionism, etc. One thing in particular I would like to correct is the claim that uh, Democratic Socialist electeds in the U.S. Congress have been silent on the war in Gaza. Let me read from an excerpt of a ceasefire now resolution calling for an immediate de-escalation and ceasefire in Israel and the occupied territories. This is a resolution that was introduced on October 16th by Democratic Socialist representatives Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Rashida Tlaib, Cori Bush, Ilhan Omar, and then several other progressive representatives, including Jesus Garcia here from Chicago, an old friend of Labor Express, and Delia Ramirez, also from the Chicago area and a former student. Um, granted, given the pro-war bias in Congress in both parties, the resolution is not likely to go anywhere, but here's what it says. Result that the U.S. House of Representatives urges the Biden administration to immediately call and facilitate de-escalation and a ceasefire to urgently end the current violence and calls upon the Biden administration to promptly send and facilitate the entry of humanitarian assistance into Gaza. That's just an excerpt from the statement, but it gives you the sense of what it's about. That language closely resembles the language put out by the new labor formation that Larry Goldbetter helped put together in the last few days, which is being led by UE, United Electrical Workers Union, and the United Food and Commercial Workers Local 3000. Their resolution states the basic rights of people must be restored. Water, fuel, food, and other humanitarian aid must be allowed into Gaza. Power must be restored. Foreign nationals and Palestinians requiring medical care must be allowed out of Gaza. The Israeli hostages taken by Hamas must be immediately released. Both Hamas and Israel must adhere to standards of international law and the Geneva Convention rules of warfare confirming the welfare and security of civilians. There must be a ceasefire in Gaza. The cycle of violence must stop so that negotiations for an enduring peace proceed. The U.S. must act. We call on President Biden to immediately call for a ceasefire. So that's the, uh, just again, a segment of the uh, statement put out by uh, this new labor formation that Larry Goldbetter from National Writers Union was involved in and uh, UE and uh, this local, local 3000, the United Food and Commercial Workers Union is part of. And there's a few other uh, union locals and so on that are involved in this as well. Labor Express has signed on to that statement. Uh, so uh, we're a part of that as well. Well, that's all for tonight's episode, but you can always find out more by visiting our Facebook page at laborexpress.org. That's laborexpress.org. We actually have a link to that uh, uh, labor statement uh, that we've signed on to. You can, uh, if you're interested in, in, in checking that out and maybe signing on yourself, check that out again, laborexpress.org. Labor Express is a nonprofit 51c3 member of IBW Local 1220. The views expressed on Labor Express are those of producers, not necessarily those of IBW. Labor Express is a production of the Committee for Labor Access in Chicago, the world capital of the labor movement. Labor Express is a proud member of the Labor Radio Podcast Network, working people's voices broadcasting worldwide 24 hours a day. Find out more at laborradionetwork.org. The song is our theme is called Worker Songs, written by Ed Pickford and recorded by the Dropkick Murphys. Tune in every Sunday, 8 p.m. or Monday at 11 a.m. on 105.5 FM or lumpenradio.com for more Labor Express. <laughs>
the cat.